Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trip through Major League Baseball's history. Normally one conversation at a time, but today we change that up with a special episode of the podcast. For those of you who have just found us today, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you hear enough that you make your way back to listen to previous episodes. For all of you who are back again, thanks so much for making Hardball part of your rotation in the podcast world. Before we get started, thanks to all of you who have helped spread the word, pointing a baseball fan or two that you know to the show, maybe even using social media. I have to tell you, though, I've been scolded by a few people who do this, that I need to ask that you subscribe. That way you get a notification when a new episode drops. And when you're done listening today, if you can, go to the iTunes iPhone Hardball Podcast icon in your podcast library and rate and review, as that helps podcast providers know that we exist. It takes a minute or two, and your feedback helps me going forward. As always, I hope you hear in the voices of the men I've caught up with. Tone, texture, sometimes the sadness of games lost, opportunities missed, but as well, at times, a whimsy that comes with knowing that they played a kid's game, the backyard dream fulfilled as they became one of the 1% on top of the 1% who played the game at any level to make it to the major league level. Stories and memories at times flooding back, their kindness kind enough to share them with us to create pictures and mind videos of players and games and moments Many of them played before we were even born. And in this special edition, my guess would be close to two dozen names brought up that you will know, many of them Hall of Famers and characters throughout the game's history. Before I get to the introductions of our three guests today and why I bundled up these conversations, I've got something for you guys as well. Well, at least some of you. If you're the parent, grandparent, or know someone in the state of Georgia, in and around the city of Atlanta, who has a child who is playing baseball, softball, or soccer, I'm about to give you the best deal in the podcast world. How would you like your child to get a free, and I mean free, one-on-one lesson, a session at the best training facility in the state of Georgia? For your soccer player, Toker Training has figured it out. What coaches want and at higher levels demand. First touch ability. The ball skill that brings with it control and confidence. Think about having a one-on-one, small ball advanced technology system that generates more touches than they've ever had in any practice they've ever participated in. Fun, fast-paced, soccer training and workout rolled into one from the best communicators you'll see in and around the game. I have two daughters playing high school soccer, and my youngest will absolutely be relying on Toka as her recovery from knee surgery puts her in a place to get back to doing the soccer work she will need to make up for what will be a year-plus off the field. All you have to do is go to tokafootball.com, T-O-C-A, football.com, tokafootball.com, find the nearest location and receive that free 
and I mean free, again, no obligation, one-hour session, you and your player will realize that the ability to take it to the next level is right there at your fingertips. It's why college scholarship players, as well as Atlanta United players and others in MLS, as well as their academy teams, use Toka year-round to stay sharp. Take advantage of this offer, tokafootball.com. It's an incredible opportunity to experience one-on-one training at its best. So why these three conversations rolled up into one episode? Well, what if I told you that I was able to speak with the men who gave up a few of the most famous home runs in baseball history and put them all in one place? October 1st, 1961, Yankee Stadium, the last day of the regular season, and Roger Maris sits tied with Babe Ruth at 60 home runs. The Boston Red Sox, 31 games out of first place, facing the American League pennant-clinching Yankees, and the attendance on this historic day is listed as an incredibly low 10,244 in the official box score. Fourth inning, nobody on and one out. Roger steps into the box, 60 feet and 6 inches, separate him and the man that will forever be linked with Maris and baseball immortality. October 13, 1960. The 1960 season has come down to one game, Game 7. Forbes Field, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A series that has seen the Yankees outscore the Pirates 46-17 to in the first six games, yet still finds them without another notch in the World Series belt. And busting to the ballpark, having no idea what a 23-year-old eight-hole hitting second baseman named Bill Mazeroski was going to do to them on this beautiful fall day. September 28, 1960, Fenway Park. Ted Williams, after just announcing his immediate retirement, he would not be traveling with the Red Sox for the last three games of the 1960 season, played at Yankee Stadium. He would get his last four plate appearances, three official at-bats, ending his incredible 21-year career. And you might know what he did. But if you don't, stay tuned. Tracy Stallard, Ralph Terry, Jack Fisher. A quick breakdown of the stories of catching up with these men to have them all tell their stories, but believe me, so many more. The most asked question I get doing what I do for a living has always been, who did you enjoy speaking to the most? That's the infamous sports version of who's your favorite child. I've always been able to narrow it down to a handful plus, but one name in that group always elicits the same response. I know all those other guys. Who's Tracy Stallard? And then I get to tell them why Tracy Stallard is one of my favorite all-timers. Tracy Stallard is everything you hope for when you were dialing the phone, never knowing how it's going to go and hoping for the best. Tracy had a period in his life when talking about giving up Maris's 61st became tiresome, annoying even. But the guy I caught up with was as engaging as any I've ever spoken to. His career was more than that one pitch, and his ability to tell a story was as good as any I've talked to. He became one of those men who I would call just to say hello, to ask about his golf game, to see how he was doing, and in part just to hear the Virginia, aw shucks, well I'm good, how are you? Just a few minutes, and again, while I have those memories, like a few other players who I would do that with over time and years, I wish I had asked to record on some of those occasions. I never did find out what was up with him and Duke Snyder. You'll get to that in a few minutes. I'm not sure I laughed or enjoyed many more than Tracy. I think you're going to find out why. Here he is, Evan Tracy Stallard. There it is. There it is. If it stays fair, there it is, number 60. And they're calling him out of the dugout. This is most unusual. Fastball hit deep to right. It's going to be it. Way back there. Holy cow. Another standing ovation for Roger Maris. Hits the one home run. He has a swing and a high five.
Tracy Stallard, you probably know the name for certainly one event in baseball history, but I'm going to talk to him about a few things tonight before we talk about October 1st, 1961. Mr. Stallard does join us tonight for the first time on Hardball. Mr. Stallard, how are you this evening? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Well, very good, sir. I do appreciate your time tonight. All right. No problem. Now, I mentioned, and I'm sure everybody, you know, Come playoff time, come October, come whenever, Tracy Stallard's name is always going to come up, so it's guys like me giving you a phone call. But if you don't mind, we're going to talk about a few other parts of your career before we talk about that October in 1961, if that's okay with you. Oh, that'd be fine with me. There's, uh, there's nothing much exciting, but uh, we'll go at it. Well, you had a chance to play for one of the legendary managers of all time. You and I spoke for a few minutes yesterday. We talked a little bit about Casey Stengel. A lot of people might not realize you were a member of that original Mets team, correct? Yeah, he was uh, he was pretty good to me. He let me pitch every fourth day, and uh, you know I don't I think I was ten and twenty one year, and I I keep telling people that's five hundred, or it sounds like five hundred somewhere. <laughs> well, if you use you know the right kind of math, I guess that's what it could come across as. Yeah. <laughs> now we talked about a story. You guys played in the Polo Grounds before Shea Stadium was actually built. Yeah, that was uh, that was an experience. I think that's the first year I was with the Mets, I believe. And uh, yeah, that's a tough park. If they hit it fairly good, you were going to have a problem as a pitcher, were you not? Well, down the lines is about two twenty, and uh, uh, both lines, and I think center field was like uh, three or four miles. But <laughs> you know, it was uh, yeah. I pitched there one time. I'll tell you, I know. We're going to get to some of the Casey stories, and I'll just tell you one right away. They, uh, we were pitch. I was pitching against the Phillies, and uh, they were going to tear the polo grounds down the next year or after the season. And I think Callison, the first two times up, Johnny Callison hit two home runs, and the ball rattled around up in the upper deck down the right field line, and. Uh, Stingle came out to the mound, and he called me Larson. <laughs> he never called me Tracy. He called me Larson. And there would be a physical resemblance, I guess? Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I don't, I, don't know. I don't know Casey that well. I didn't know him that well. But anyway, I, I responded when he said that. And he asked me how we were pitching him, and I said, well, we're trying to pitch him inside. And he Turned around and walked off, and this is the truth. He said, well, you keep doing that. And he said, that's one section up there they won't have to tear down. <laughs> now, there's also another story. Around the polo grounds, wasn't there a train that actually ran around the stadium? Oh, yeah. Well, the subway, It. Uh, I started the game one time, and I, I think the subway turned from uh, Manhattan. It turned around and went back to the Bronx. That was the end of the line for it, and it went back down uh, down Manhattan, and I gave up about six or seven runs the first inning, and uh, he come out and told me uh, if I would hurry and take a shower, I could catch that same train back that I <laughs> rode up there on. Now, that, I think, was your first game ever in the polo grounds. I think it was, yeah. yes. So, yeah. Casey Stengel, now, when you say you didn't know him very well, some people might find that a little bit strange, but Casey certainly was older then. What, what did you take out of that experience of being around a legendary baseball name and character like Casey Stengel? Well, he never, he never let you know him. I mean, he didn't want you to know him too good, uh, or that's the part I got from it. But I'll tell you what, when he wanted you to know something, uh, you got the point. And it's almost like because of some of the things that people have said, ha-ha, that was funny, they might not regard him in the esteem he's supposed to be regarded in as a baseball manager. Oh, no, he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. I think he told me, I don't, I don't know, I don't remember this, but it was 
that good. But I think he told me that Kubek, he and Kubek didn't speak like for seven or eight years, and Kubek hit over 300 all those years. <laughs> so, you know, he he made his points, and uh, and you knew what he was talking about. And I guess he figured if the guy's hitting 300, just leave him alone. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, there were some bad baseball teams, the New York Mets. Now, Lovable Losers is a name that's thrown around a lot, but I don't know. What was that experience like when you go to New York and it's hyped up and the National League is back? And I think that team lost 120 games its first year out. And being a part of that, I I know you don't want to be considered the joke of the National League, but you sound like you had a great sense of humor about what was going on around you. You had to have. And, I mean, you know, every game that I lost, I I could go back and – and figure out something I did to to lose it as much as I could, uh, you know, any of the other players. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there was some there was some humorous moments. I'll I'll grant you. Marv Thronberry and well, Marv wasn't there, but I know we had. Uh, I remember one incident. Jesse Goner was catching, and the guy was on first, and I turned around. He's still in second, and I turned around. To watch you play at second, he hit me right in the butt with a ball. <laughs> well, that's so, when you, you know, know you're not destined to have a pennant-type season. Well, we had, uh, you know, Roger Craig and I lost, gosh, we lost 40, let's see, 46 games one year. That's almost a season. And, and that's almost impossible, some would say. Yeah. Now, you also played, I guess Duke Snyder came back to the Mets, did he not, to finish up his career? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you take out of playing with a guy like Duke Snyder? Well, it was okay. That's about all I'm going to say about that. You, you want to leave that one alone? Yeah, I okay. just rather leave. I know where you're going, and I just didn't leave that. Oh, no, no. I, I swear to you, I wasn't going anyplace. Is there some place well, I should was, have been going? You know, he was bitching and, and talking about how bad the Mets were, and that was after they traded him uh, to San Francisco. So I said, how in the hell are you going to help a first-place team if you can't help a last-place team? <laughs> Touche. You know, I, I didn't know that story. I, I swear uh, I wasn't trying to lead you down that road. Uh, you you did, too. And now you, you also pitched in a couple of historic games. Uh, one of the games you took the loss in, I guess, in 64, the longest game in baseball history, correct? Did I lose that game? Yeah, unfortunately, I believe the record books will say that. Wow. I didn't. You know what? I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> San that Francisco, was 27 innings, wasn't it, or something? Seven hours and 23 minutes. What the heck are you doing in a game that late? I don't know. I was usually in bed by that time. <laughs> and what about Jim Bunning? Jim Bunning pitched a heck of a game, and you happen to be the guy that – A perfect game. Well, I hit the hardest ball I was hit off of him that day, probably. He, now, do you – I don't know if you know this. It, certainly you know it's Father's Day, and you certainly are going to remember when a guy throws a perfect game. He threw 90 pitches in that game, 79 strikes. That's impossible. Yeah, well, that's got to tell you what kind of hitters we had. <laughs> uh. <laughs> do you remember how you pitched that day? I don't know what was the score. I don't even remember the score. I'm not sure, but you obviously didn't pitch quite as good as him that day. No. God almighty, no. (laughs) I could have given up one run, the same old thing as Maris. One run, you lose. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. My guest tonight is Tracy Stallard, certainly most known for giving it up to Roger Maris October See, 1st. Yeah, I eased you right into that. Yes, you did, sir, and I really appreciate But, well, listen, <laughs> being a guy who grew up in, in, you know, born in Brooklyn and Staten Island and the Mets were the adopted team because my father was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, mm-hmm. I've read the books, and I've read Murray Allen's book about that hapless team, and I've read the Stacey you know, Casey Stengel quotes and the things that were going on around and uh, the Marv Thronberries and Ed Cranepool, who was supposed to be the local boy who was yeah. going to be the savior. And uh, I'm just fascinated by that team and that run from, 
you know, its inception to 1969 when they finally won the World Series. Yeah, they were they were a good bunch of guys. I don't know, Maury. I know Maury and I are our friends. I assume he's still alive. Yes, and, he is. And we were friends, but he he got a little bit more out of that than than most. You know, you could hang around the clubhouse, and you know, I think anybody could write a book. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, let me ask you this, sir. What was the relationship? People talk about, you know, and, and I'm sure maybe you saw the movie 61 and people uh, have always talked about the players being protected and, you know, how the writers were different and they traveled with the guys. What was your relationship and what did you actually think of the New York media when you got to? Oh, the they Mets? were all they all treated me pretty good. Mm-hmm. They really did. I have nothing to say bad about them. But and I, I really I wouldn't give a damn what they said now. I'm not just saying that. Mm hmm. Cause, uh, but I had a few bad articles, and I had some good articles. I, uh, Dick Young, and I remember, yeah, Dick Young, very kind to me. And Dick Young is one of the guys that people say, boy, you know, you might be one of the few to actually have kind words about Dick yeah, Young. Yeah, he was, he was very good, and I'll tell you another one that I really I liked, and, and I'll probably see him again sometime, was uh, he's a boxing announcer now uh, from Philadelphia. He was a writer for Philadelphia. Boy, I got to think of who that might be. Gosh, I can't. Oh man, Larry. No. Larry Merchant. Larry Merchant. Yeah, Larry Merchant was a writer in Philadelphia. Yeah, very he's, kind to me. Well, I mean, he's a little, he, he he's, was just a super, super good guy. There's, there was some good writers, well, you know, and then there were some bad ones. Let's talk about October first, nineteen sixty-one. Now, obviously, okay. you play for the Red Sox, and yeah. the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry is what it is. Yeah. Um, for so many years and for so many reasons, certainly heated is an appropriate word if you don't even want to use anything more caustic than that. But going into that game, I'm serious about this. I know Roger Maris might have had some butterflies going, but when you know you're going to pitch that day and he's at 60 home runs, was the night before any different or strange for you? No, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't. We didn't know who was pitching until we got to the ballpark. And now, Why is that? Was it because well, the season was... Well, I don't was... know. I, I don't think there was really any any reason for it other than maybe you know people might try to get to you mm-hmm. or uh or influence you in one way or the other but uh, gene Conley and i were roommates the pitcher you know that played with the celtics mm-hmm. and we got to the ballpark the normal time and we were in the clubhouse and uh here comes sal magley with a ball and i thought he was giving it to gene and i thought and Gene thought he was giving it to me, and, and Gene was right. I got the ball. So we didn't know till, uh till probably 45 minutes before the game. Now, what ran through your head initially? You know, you're playing in Yankee Stadium. You know you're a competitor. I don't think you want to ha- – and you, you were very funny about it. We'll talk about it in a second. You, you, when, when Roger Maris paid you a compliment, when he said, I want to give him credit for pitching to me, you might have had an ulterior motive to pitching to him, correct? No, I, I – no, no, no. You know what else is what else is Maris going to say? But uh, I mean, he has to he has to say that. But no, I'm just trying to get him out. No, Hell, but I didn't you care said he had but ten you, home runs or or eighty home runs. But you said something very funny because you come up in the fifth inning after Maris hits the home run, and the Yankee fans actually give you a big ovation, do they not? Well, I swung so hard. I want to tell you the first pitch Stafford was pitching. And I swung so hard that I just spun out and my helmet flew off. <laughs> and that was the reason for the old age. <laughs> so it wasn't, hey, we appreciate your pitching to him. It was the swing no, and the helmet flying. I think flying. it was the hard swing that I tried to, 
you know, I thought I thought I might hit a home run. But Roger Maris said something again. He did say that, hey, listen, I give him credit. He pitched to me, and and but you said something very funny. You said if you didn't pitch to him, what did you think might happen to you? Oh, I would, you know, I wouldn't have been satisfied with myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about the only thing, you know. Anybody could have gone out and walked him three or four times. You didn't want to do that. No. Were you nervous about no. throwing strikes? No, I was just a. If you knew me, you would know that I wasn't nervous. Okay. Were you shocked when you came out to start that game and you saw about 23,000 people in the stands for such a yes, start? Yes, I was. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I really was. And I've met I've met 100,000 that was there. Oh, sure. Yeah. If not more. Yeah, probably more. Now, did, did you notice when he came up this whole shift that supposedly happened to the right field bleachers, people running over to that area? Yeah, that's. I have a picture, or I've seen pictures here that, that side of the field looked like that Yankee Stadium was full. Mm-hmm. But he, no, the rest of the park was empty, I think. He pops up the first time you face him, yeah. and then I think you were down 2-0. Yeah, two balls, no strikes, and I'm just trying to throw a strike. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't think Mantle played that day. No, I think he was out. You're right. And, uh, but they had Scourn or Howard or somebody following him. I mean, they wasn't an easy out. No, it's the 1961 Yankees. They were pretty good. Yes, they were. Um, did you know it was gone? When he hit it? No, because it was pretty high. Mm-hmm. And I think Lou Clinton was playing, I believe he was in the outfield. And I saw him going back and looking up, but uh, no, I don't, I didn't, I still thought he had a chance. Now, Roger, I've spoken to Bobby Thompson, and, and, you know, the Ed Sullivan show seems to be what happens a lot of times. Jim Bunning, after he threw that perfect game against you, he was on the Ed Sullivan show that night. Anything that happened in New York, if it was famous, he ended up on the Ed Sullivan show. I know Roger had a lot of things going on. What did you do that night? Well, I, let's see. Let me, let me think. Hey, Gene Connolly and I slipped out of the clubhouse. Of course, all the players was, was – uh, uh, all the sports writers was in uh, the Yankee clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And Gene Conley and I got on a bus and went to the train station and took a train back to Boston. Now, that's the last game of the season for you guys. Yes. D- do you? So the media didn't come talk. I mean, obviously they're busy with Roger, but. Yeah, they. I didn't. we didn't even shower. No, there wasn't anybody over there. They didn't want to see me. So we got out of there. Well, that's interesting because you would think, you know, let's go get the other guy's side of the story. Did people start trying to track you down in Boston a day or two later? No, I wasn't. Uh, it wasn't such a, it wasn't such a big thing at that time. Mm-hmm. Do you think, think is it bigger now than it was it's actually? Bigger now it than is. it was then, I think. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, Mr. Stallard. As we finish up, one of the other things I've heard about you, and you can tell me if this is fact or fiction. Uh, I read a little piece that said. Uh, you you enjoyed the nightlife and going out a little bit when you played. You had a good time with this whole thing, did you not? Oh, sure. It didn't didn't bother me a bit. Now, true or false, did you once date uh, Julie Newmar? Have you ever heard that before? Oh, I've heard that before. I'll just let you guess. <laughs> I'll say yes. Is there anybody else who maybe we might know? I don't know. I'm not, I'll just <laughs> let that go. <laughs> now, you ended up playing with Roger, did you not, in St. Louis? No, I was gone when he uh, his year there. Oh, yeah. so you were done in '66. He comes over yeah. in '67. Right. How yeah. about conversations? Did you ever, you know, meet well, up with I him? Well, I saw him after that, and I played in his golf tournament mm-hmm. a couple of times. And uh, of course, he was well, he wasn't alive in the golf tournament. But yes, I did see him a couple of times after that. And the first time I played in his golf tournament in uh, Fargo, I 
I won the tournament. <laughs> well, so there you I go. I got even with it. Yeah, sort of you did. Yeah, that and makes it easy. Is it kind of interesting to you? Do you think this many years later, people such as myself would still know your name and still call that, you? Yeah, that's, that is really, uh, that's, that's unreal. You know, that's awesome. I, I don't know why, you know, they ask, people ask me now who Bonds hit this off of or who McGuire hit that off of, and I, I don't. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think it meant as much recently as it did back then. Now, were you aware of the whole, since he didn't do it in 154 games, baseball was trying to figure out how to signify this? And Oh, yeah. I was. We were just heart sick about that. I mean, afterwards, but at the time of that thing, I just, you know, I, I was just going to pitch another ball game. Right. And I, and, I mean, if you knew me, you would know that's the truth, too. I. I didn't get too excited about stuff. So you, you've enjoyed all of this stuff. You've enjoyed the career. You certainly enjoyed it, it sounds like, while it was going on. And, hey, you were out to do yeoman's work. Your job yeah, is to get people I out. Yeah, I just walk. I don't mind it. I, I certainly don't think it's a disgrace not to be a baseball player. Heck no. You know, I, I just, uh, you know, it was a job, and uh, you go do the best you can, and and that's it. Well, let's just finish up with this, and just a, a quick background. You're from Virginia, correct? Yes. Um were you considered a hot prospect when you first were signed, or? Uh, probably, but I wasn't impressed with that either. Were you, you signed know? as a seventeen or eighteen year old? Is that how it worked for you? Eighteen year old. Was there a signing bonus at all? Did well, yeah, we got. Uh, I think at that time there was a four thousand dollar rule. If you got more than four thousand, you had to go to the big league right. and stay for two years or something. So the bonus and the salary totaled four thousand. <laughs> From June to, I don't know when I graduate, June 2nd, I guess. Did you have a good time in the minors? Why, well, yeah. It, you know, it's just a job. I wasn't impressed with it. I just, let's go do it and get on with it. And let's see how good I am and let's see how good the other guy is. Yeah. I think my first game I walked like 16 and struck out 17. <laughs> now, what does a manager do when a guy has a game like that? Oh, he's ball-headed in two or three weeks. <laughs> You know, that how, kind of thing. how long did it take for you to get to the majors? Oh, two and a half years. Well, that's not bad. I think 59, I believe. I, I really don't know. I'm so impressed with it. I don't know. <laughs> well, think about it, though. When you had that many minor league teams to jump up in two and a half or three years, that's, I mean, you must have been doing something right in the minors. Yeah, I went from I went from A-ball to the big league. Wow, that's, that's again, impressive back then. How about Boston as a town? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I didn't. You're not going to get any of the, my nightlife stuff. No, no, I'm no. Just... So so let me <laughs> let me just ask you. I don't it, know. We couldn't afford to go out. On a, what they was paying us, we couldn't afford to go to the good places to see how it was. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your nightlife as a major leaguer? Uh, probably three and a half. Oh, I think you're lying to me, sir. <laughs> I think you're flat out lying to me. I'll compare it to yours. What is yours? Uh, mine is, uh, well... No, it's not what it used to be. That's for damn sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not the only one. So you, you hit the golf ball. You have a good time. You, you do some of the circuits. and Yeah, I play golf every day. No, I'm sorry. When I mentioned the movie 61, did you say you've never seen I it? I went to sleep in it. Really? Why? Well, yeah, it was on TV, and I went to sleep. I, was, I, didn't, I thought it was not too good. On Can, a 10, I, it was probably a two and a half. Why do you think that? Because it didn't tell a real story. I mean, they kept too much stuff out of it. Like what? Well, 
I ain't going there either. No, well, how about this? I mean, you said it, so obviously you lived it. Were you talking about the Maris Mantle? Well, they 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 tried to, you know, they wanted to show the the messing around and the drinking mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but they didn't want to show any of the good stuff. You know, they didn't want to show the negative part. They wanted to show, I, I just, I didn't think it was much of a movie. Did you? I was impressed in the movie making of it for it being a made-for-TV movie. I thought the two guys did a commendable job. Uh, I thought there was a certain look to the movie. It did look like 1961 in some regard. Um, I don't know, but see, here's my problem. I'm 40 years old. That's two years before I'm born. I wouldn't have the insight that you would have. Well, I I don't. Well, I I just thought it was. It just looked like a cheap movie to me. Okay, fair enough. Now that's my opinion. Well, fair enough, sir. Listen, Mr. Stallard, uh, thanks very much for spending some time. As I said, uh, hopefully we'll do this somewhere down the road. And good for you for the way that you've actually, you know, carried yourself for, for all these years. I've heard some well, great yeah. stories about you. And Doing good. We, we'll we play a tournament in Atlanta this year, so try to get out there. What, what are you playing? Who are you playing with? Uh, we play one of the baseball tournaments there. One, is it one of the uh, bat tournaments or the yeah, assistance well, team no it's not bad it's the alumni well i'm looking i will get information if i can and i would love to be out there oh yeah daryl cheney's the one that runs it I are you give, in atlanta i got a number okay i'll give him a ring get your butt out there well mr stallard i look forward to meeting you then all right buddy have yourself a great day okay thanks very too. much all take right, care bye. bye before we get to ralph terry here's what i promised your baseball and softball playing athlete the same one hour free one-on-one session with the best coaches and trainers in the youth baseball business hitting, fielding, pitching, all-in-one D-bat facility run by both former professional and college players. This free one-hour session will highlight and touch on the things that can't be accomplished in a team practice. And for those who have done individual training, you'll see the difference that upbeat, encouraging, an environment can do for your young athlete just starting out player all the way up to the highly competitive travel ball player. Help your athlete with this offer, one hour free to start their game on a path to the next level of play. Go to dbatatlanta.com. That's D, the letter, batatlanta.com, to find your location and get your one-hour free session. Ralph Terry had perhaps the most incredible three-season bookend moments in baseball history. From giving up Mazeroski's Game 7 walk-off home run in Pittsburgh to bouncing back and winning the 1962 World Series MVP, finishing that year's Game 7 on the mound as Willie McCovey's screaming line drive found Bobby Richardson's glove to rewrite his personal place in the game's history. At the time of this conversation, Ralph, 84 years young, had an incredible recall, as incredible as any I've spoken to, and his career is so much more than those two pitches. Here he will talk about the players and stories, baseball's audio history at its best. Here he is, Ralph Willard Terry. So you must be pretty upset after the Yankees lost. Bill Mazeroski, I hate him. He made Mickey Mantle cry. The paper said that the Mick was crying. We were just, I guess, young and dumb went out and we thought we could win any any time we stepped on the mound. And the big thing was going against the Yankees. Of course, they had great teams back then. Every year I was with them, we were 11-11 against the Yankees. Al Terry gets set. Here's the pitch to Willie. Here's a liner straight to Richardson. The ball game is over and the World Series is over. Willie McCovey hit it like a bullet. A line drive right straight to Bobby Richardson at second base. Had that ball
center of the diamond, and well, they should. What a pitcher Ralph Terry was here today. He pitched a four-hit shutout, going right down to the bottom of the ninth. A line drive off the bat of Willie McCovey, going straight into the glove of Bobby Richardson at second base. Now, this man has led some life, not only a professional baseball player, but a professional golfer. We'll talk about that coming up in a little bit. But, boy, the people he played against and played with, it is a long list of established Hall of Fame-type players and a couple of managers thrown in there as well that we will talk about tonight with Ralph Terry. Mr. Terry, thank you very much, sir. How are you tonight? Just fine. Thank you. Um, Appreciate your time this evening, as a matter of fact. Thank you again for that. Yeah, you bet. You, you actually come up with the New York Yankees when the New York Yankees are the New York Yankees. You make your first appearance, I believe, in 1956 coming over with Kansas City initially and then with the New York Yankees on top of that. You had a little play between Kansas City and New York. What's it like to be a young guy of 20 years old and have Yankee pinstripes on? I was a little nervous at first. <laughs> but, um, you know, I got over it pretty quick because we were pitching for a good team. And uh, well, I came up with the Yankees originally, and um, I went to spring training with them when I was 18 in uh, 54. And uh, I thought I made the ball club in uh, 55. I had a real good spring, and then uh, I got cut down right the last day of spring training, and they sent me down to Denver in AAA. But uh, then I got called up in 56 and uh, pitched, my, pitched my first game in Fenway Park. Well, we'll and, get, uh, let, me, let me ask you this, though. When you're 19 years old and it looks like you might actually make the New York Yankees, you must have sort of handled your water really well that at 19 you were able to go down in front of that group with such a limited amount of spots open in a four-man rotation. To pit, yeah. Why were you able to pitch so well at 19 and 20 where you were eventually up in the major leagues with that team that early? Well, you know, I played uh, I played semi, semi-pro ball in the summer. You know, started when I was um, 16. I used to have a Ben Johnson league. Uh, it was an amateur league, you know, for uh, mostly college players and and uh, I played in a, in a league in uh, Baxter Springs, Kansas. And uh, Cleet Boyer, our third baseman, was he, he was uh, 16. We were the two youngest players in the league. He played for a team in Joplin. <laughs> and then the next year I played for Independence, Kansas, in the same league, and then also for uh, uh, Minden, Louisiana, in a real fast semi-pro league. So... You know, I'd been exposed to some some pretty good competition, and then I signed a major league contract and and uh, went to spring training with the Yankees, and they had an early camp, and I went through that, and so you know, I was uh, I was in pretty good shape. How aware were you with scouts or people watching you at 17 years old? Were you obviously if you're playing good competition, the scouts were going everywhere; they were trying to find talent. But do you remember knowing or feeling that there might be professional baseball scouts actually watching you play that young? Well, when I was uh, 15, uh, I uh, the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals, had a uh, tryout camp in uh, a little town of Pryor, Oklahoma, and uh, it was on a weekend, and, and I signed up for it, you know, and uh, I lied about my age as I was 18. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, uh, it was... Uh, on a Friday night, I pitched a, a American Legion ball game and struck out 21 men, and and I came back to this tryout camp the next day, 
and uh, I faced nine men and uh, struck out eight out of nine, and one guy had a little pop-up as a catcher. Just all fastballs, and the scout was standing behind the mound. And uh, they they had uh, over about 130 players, and they called out five names for a contract on Sunday afternoon, and uh, mine was one of them. I could have signed when I was 15. Now, at what point do you have to let them know that you're not 18 years old? Well, they found out. Yeah. You know, I couldn't sign. So when the Yankees, how did the Yankees end up with your services? Well, I got, I'd uh, boil it down to uh, the Cardinals and the Yankees. So the, uh, I ended up signing with the Yankees. And then it begins. Uh, and then you're up as a young man, as we said, of 20 years old in 1956. Your first game was in Fenway Park. Boy, uh, talk about being thrown right into it. Yeah, that was uh, the Yankees. In fact, uh, I thought I was going to pitch... Uh, in Detroit, uh, you know, the Friday before and uh, well, on Saturday. I was supposed to pitch on Saturday. And uh, Casey Stingle, the manager, got a call from uh, from the general manager of the Yankees saying, you've got to switch from uh, Ralph Terry to bullet Bob Turley to pitch. He said, well, who's running this ball club, me or you? He said, no, 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 it's game of the week. It was a big deal then with uh-huh. Dizzy Dean. <laughs> yep. And uh, so he pitched. So I didn't pitch till uh, till uh, then Whitey pitched a Sunday game in Detroit. Then we moved to Boston. We lost six straight. And they'd won six in a row. And uh, I started that game against uh, against uh, their ace. I don't know if his name. He'd, and uh, won that game four to three in Fenway Park. I was the youngest pitcher the Yankees ever had that, you know, rookie that started in the, started the game for him in Fenway. Uh, and there's Ted Williams, by the way, right in the middle of that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I walked him on four pitches the first time up. And then <laughs> the second time, uh, I threw him a curveball, and he hit it so hard it hit the this concrete wall out in center field in Fenway Park, <laughs> and ricocheted back to Maryland so hard he, he held him to a single. Holy smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's crazy, too? You come up in 1956. You mentioned almost making a team in 1955. That's the year the Dodgers beat the Yankees for their only pennant, their only World Series, excuse me, in, in Brooklyn. So yeah. what was 1956? You know, it's funny. I don't know if this is true or not. Mickey Mantle supposedly had a line to young guys. Don't screw this up because I've already spent my World Series check. That team was used to winning, and they were coming off the loss to the Brooklyn Dodgers that year before. Yeah. yeah well, uh, anyway, we we came back. I I came up late in the season, and they moved me off the roster. And I'd come up, and Irv Noren was a left-hand hitter, mm-hmm. and he'd got hurt, and uh, they gave me a spot on the roster there at 25 men there late in the season. But then when the series started, the commissioner allowed him to uh, pick up Enos Slaughter, left-hand hitter, you know, mm-hmm. to to uh, in place of Norman, you know, for the World Series. So that's when Don Larson pitched a perfect game. And, yes, it was. Uh, I you... got a fourth. I got a fourth of a fourth of a share of the World Series money. I got twenty-four hundred dollars. And and those are the types of numbers you don't forget when you're 20 years old, I guess. <laughs> no, that was nice. That was a good check. I was very generous. (laughs) Now, what's really interesting is a lot of people might not know the relationship between the Kansas City Athletics and the New York Yankees, but there was 
you know, between Roger Maris and you were part of the Billy Martin trade that sent Billy over to Kansas City, correct? Yeah, that's right. So in uh, 57, uh, I was one and one, and then we came to uh, June the 15th trade deadline. We were in uh, Kansas City on, on a Saturday evening, and I had to pitch batting practice, and I pitched a whole hour of batting practice. It used me up. I knew, I knew I'd been traded. There'd been rumors. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, Casey calls me in uh, after the uh, after, after the game, and he said, well, we just made a trade. And I said, where am I going? He said, you're going to Kansas City. And I said, who's involved? He said, you and Martin are going for Suitcase Simpson and uh, Jim Pasoni and I think uh, Ryan Duran, mm -hmm. and they sent him down to Myers too hard, and they made, made a relief pitcher out of him. So I said, well, you know, it seems like you gave up a, you gave up a lot more than you got. And he said, yeah, he said, Ed Martin's one hell of a player. <laughs> now, was that after the Copacabana incident? Was that the reason? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. And uh, they said, uh, Hey, when they trade you, they say um, they'd make up a reason why they got rid of you. Something they said uh, Billy Martin was a bad influence on Mickey Mantle, and uh, Billy said, "Yeah, I was a bad influence. He won the Triple Crown last year." <laughs> <laughs> now, do you remember hearing as a player about the Copa incident? Because I've heard so many different versions of that story. Whitey has told me a version. Um, mm -hmm. Other people, what what did you hear about that incident? And and I guess they were they were pissed off enough to send Billy to Kansas City after that. Well, I don't think that's the reason I got rid of him. The reason I got rid of him was they had a, I had a player named Bobby Richardson mm -hmm. waiting in the wings. It was pretty darn good, and uh, I think I just made room for Bobby. But uh, no, that that Copa incident. Uh, I was staying at the hotel or John Cross Plaza, and several of the players were staying there. I think uh, Moose was down the hall. He was babysitting for him. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the next day, nobody really, nobody really said what what happened. You know, they they kind of hushed it up. So I don't know what the real deal was. So anyway, they got an argument and. Somebody punched somebody. <laughs> and then, yeah, then the bill. Uh, I guess the Yankees weren't very happy with the tab that that was run up either. Yeah. Well, did you think that Casey Stengel knew enough about you and liked you enough where the possibility? Like, did you ever think that you would end up back with the Yankees? When uh, you know, the first time I faced the Yankees, I hadn't been pitching very much. When I come into D come into New York on a Sunday, second game of a doubleheader. Mickey Mantle was batting third, and I got a 3 2 count on him and threw a good curveball for a strike, and the umpire called it a ball. And they didn't have another base runner until two men out in the eighth. Wow. And uh, I ended up losing the game one to nothing. <laughs> I ran out of gas, and uh, McDougal got a double, and Seaver got a single. And, uh, but anyway, so the next time I faced him was in Kansas City. And I beat uh, Bob Turley one to nothing, and they only got shut out twice mm. in the whole season. I shut them out one other early win, beat them later in the season. So anyway, we had some battles, and uh, when I got traded back to the Yankees, Casey said, "I got rid of you, kid, and I got you back." <laughs> and boy, uh, there were some moments certainly after that. We're talking to Ralph Terry. 
uh, whose career is amazing on so many levels. You mentioned the AB against Ted Williams in your first game as a as a big league pitcher up in Fenway Park. Most people know your name for two reasons. And by the way, one, it's it's one of the most historic moments in baseball history. But boy, you're bounced back two years later. So I, I do want to ask you about 1960 because the Yankees were still the New York Yankees. They were winning pennants and they were competing in a World Series. That 1960 series, or that 1960 season, um, what do you remember most about the season? We'll talk about the Mazeroski home run in a second, but what do you remember about this season? You're back with them full-time. You were there in 59, but now you go back to spring training in 1960, and that is a hell of a ball club from top to bottom. Yeah, we've gotten Maris, uh, yep. you know, in the, winter, in the winter after the 59 season. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I think the Yankees made two two big trades that set the league back a few years. One is when they got... Uh, Bullet Bob Turley and Don Larson, two big right-handers from Baltimore, and then when they got Roger Maris from you know from Kansas City, we had a good ball club. The uh, I think uh, I lost uh, fourth game uh, three to two, pitched pretty good, and then uh, I got they got thrown in the relief uh, in the seventh game. I warmed up five times. It was a high-scoring game, and then. The, it was, it was back and forth, and I came up. I think it was score was nine to nine. I think. Anyway, I warmed up on a mound that was uh, real steep in a bullpen several times, and and I wore and I more or less. Uh, well, Bob Turley started. He got in trouble. I warmed with the, warmed up with Bill Stafford. He came in and uh, sat down, and, and he got in trouble. And Bobby Chance warmed up. And I warmed. Warmed, warmed up, and he, he went in, and he got in trouble. I warmed up with Jim Coates, and he put Coates in. And it was um, Hal Smith had a three-run homer, and he That's was right. actually uh, Coates had him struck out on a fastball high side. He swung, followed through, and the bat. The replay shows the bat was pointed at the pitcher, and he oh. pulled it back, and the umpire called, didn't call the strike. You know, nowadays they'd replay it and they'd call them, you know, and they'd appeal to the gallon first. And uh, so the next pitch, it's a three-run homer. But that was uh, that was a bad no-call there. Right. And then, it's, it, yeah, it's a sign of things. Look, the Yankees outscored the Pirates by a lot in the three games they won. Yeah, the run differential yeah. was crazy in that series. Yeah. Can you explain to people what it's like to warm up five times after a full year of pitching? I mean... That, that is a yeah, lot of well, up and down. Well, what happens, you know, it's a, a World Series game, especially the seventh game, the, when they say warm up, you don't know if you're going to get in or not, but you can't mess around. You've got to get hot and mm-hmm. hot and ready. And then you know, sit down and cool off, and then you got to get hot and ready again every time. It wasn't like I couldn't kind of pace myself, you know. Right. So I pretty much left it all in the bullpen. And, <laughs> I think it's the first relief game I'd relieved in in about two months. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, I got in the game and the mound was different. It was a real high mound and flat, and uh, I, it, it my foot come down earlier on it, and and uh, everything I threw was high because I'd worn up on that one mound so much. Right. And uh, the first pitch I threw, Maz was high and. Blanchard come out, so you got to get the ball down as a high ball hitter. I said, yeah, I know it. And I'll get it down. Well, the next one I got down about belt tie and get it over the fence. You know, after the uh, 
game, I felt bad for Casey. I went in, the, in his office after the game, and uh, I said, uh, I said, Casey, you got it together. I said, I'll feel bad ending it for you this way, you know. And he said, well, how are, you, how are you trying to pitch him? I said, I was trying to pitch him blown away. I knew he was an eyeball hitter. And I just couldn't get the ball down. I'd warmed up that damn mound down there. Most of the game, I got in the game, and I couldn't, I didn't make the adjustment. And he said, as long as you pitch, he said, you're not always going to get the ball where you want to. He said, that's a physical mistake. As long as you weren't going against the scouting report, he said, then I, I wouldn't sleep good at night. He said, forget it, kid, and come back and have a good year next year. And that was and, uh, that was Casey's last game as the Yankee manager, wasn't it? That's right. We all we all had a feeling he was he was going to be gone because he before the seventh game he said um, guys had a great year and uh, you know had a good offseason you know and everything I won't be able to see you after the game I to on television with uh, Danny Murtaugh either you know congratulate him or him congratulate me and uh, so we really got the feeling he was kind of saying goodbye and uh, sure sure enough and later on he said. They claimed he was 70 years old and too old. Right. <laughs> I'll never make the mistake of being 70 again. <laughs> <laughs> now, wasn't there a decision to not start Whitey in a game that a lot of people were sort of couldn't couldn't figure out? Was it was it Game Seven? Yeah, that's uh, I uh, uh, I never got a real good reason for that. I never uh, I, I I don't know. They started Didmore, and he was kind of a sinker ball pitcher. Years later, I asked Ralph Hauck, who was a coach on that team, I said, why, why didn't they start Whitey, you know, in New York especially, in, uh, or in uh, Boston, excuse me, Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, they were saving him for New York, and uh, they thought that, thought that Didmar would be effective. They were a highball-hitting ball club, and he was a good circuit ball pitcher. But, but um, now you got to use Whitey, and that's win seven games, you know, he could come in. Yeah, so was, anyway, I never really got a real yeah. good explanation. Well, Whitey Ford I is think, one. I think he was overconfident. Yeah. <laughs> do you really think that's what it was? It must have been. I yeah. don't know. Well, and Whitey, one of the greatest money game pitchers of all time. I mean, you, yeah. you, if Whitey Ford's standing, he's starting. I think that was sort of – and he might have paid a little bit of a price for that, Casey, in that, in that last year in 60. It is interesting. You mentioned Ralph Houck, who – how good was it for you that Ralph Halk becomes the manager that next year? Well, I, 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 I kid him one time. I said, I got him his job. <laughs> if I hadn't thrown the pitch to Mezzarossi, I said, Casey would still be manager. <laughs> and you had a hell of a year in 61. You go 16-3 and three in 1961. 61, 16-3 uh, was the, um, the, it's, it's, it was the highest uh, ratio, one loss percentage of of a pitcher with more than 15 or more decisions, and then Whitey it was 25 and what is 24 and five or 25 and four or something. He was, he was number one. I was number two in the, in the all-time Yankees one-loss percentage, and my, I still hold it as a right-hander. That is a good year's work. Ron Guidry, I know, was uh, 25 and three. I think one year in 78. 25 and four, I think yeah. it was. So, Mr. Terry, let me ask you this about 1961. The the defeat in 1960, and then you guys got to come to camp, but again, you still got a, a hell of a ball team. But you knew Roger Maris in Kansas City. Now Roger Maris is under the bright lights in New York. He wins the MVP in 1960, so he can handle it. 
you had one of the best seats in the house for one of the best season-long Mickey Roger chase for for 61 home runs. I mean, right. at what point, you know, Roger didn't come out of the gate very fast in terms of the home runs. At what point do you find yourself maybe watching with an interest? Wow, we could be watching a little bit of history here. Well, they had it going uh, not so early on. I said, boy, boy's history is being made. You know, another thing, Roger was the MVP in 60 as well as 61. Two-time most valuable player. Broke Babe Ruth's home run record. Held it for 37 years, longer than Ruth held it. And long before steroids. And he's not in the Hall of Fame. If he's not in the Hall of Fame, why even have a museum? <laughs> well, it's really interesting you say that. Can I ask you, um, the differences in their personalities has been talked about, and it's been written about, and it's who was pulling for Mickey and who was pulling for Roger. And Mickey wasn't necessarily the favorite son in New York, triple crown and MVPs and all. There were some people who thought Mickey should have even been better. So this, But, but it seems in 1961, New York really rallied behind Mickey Mantle. And and I don't know what the re- I've spoken to Bob Serve about it. I've spoken to Whitey Ford about it and some other people. What was your take on how it was being played out in the media in New York City that year? Oh, the, the press tore him up. He, uh, in the spring of 62, uh, he uh, broke Ruth's record. And uh, we were in spring training, and it was, uh, we were taking batting practice. And it was a, it was a, he was, uh, signed some autographs by the end of the dugout and it came his time to get in the batting cage and take batting practice. Well, he got everything run on a strict schedule and uh, he signed somebody and he said, I got to go, I go bat. So he left and Oscar Fraley was a sports writer. was a little guy. He looked like Don Knotts and he wrote The Untouchables. He was a, a fearless Fraley prediction. He was the number one, one of the great sports writers for, for Associated Press and later for United Press, and uh, Oscar saw that, and he, he, I guess when he left, there was a some grandmother there with a with a little boy or something that wanted to sign something for him, and he had to go and I can catch you later, you know, and he had to get in the batting mm-hmm. cage. Because so, Oscar wrote an article the very next day. He said, my son grows up, I don't want him to be like Roger Maris. I want him to be like John Glenn, you know, an yeah. astronaut then. And uh, so he wrote he wrote a very, very bad article about him. And then so a day or two later, somebody pointed him out to Roger. Roger came over to the dugout, and I was there. And he said, who are you, you little so-and-so? He said, what rock did you crawl out from under? You know, how could you write that garbage about me? You know, I said, I never even met you. You know, you never talked to me or anything. And uh, Oscar said, well, let's talk about it. There ain't going to be no talk. And he turned around and left. So now the, uh, I went to dinner with Oscar and Milton Richmond, who's another great United Press writer, and Leo Peterson, their editor. Right? It was shortly after that. And he told... Uh, Oscar, he said, Oscar, you were wrong. You never, you never talked to him. You know, you never spoke to him. I was, you were wrong in doing that article. And I think he wrote a little retraction or something later on. But Roger didn't grant uh, writer interviews anymore. He'd do 
TV and radio, but no, no print media uh, uh, interviews. And so then the other the other top writers come through and he didn't talk to them. They they really wrote teed off on him. He's vicious articles. Uh, he's a crybaby. Teammates don't like him. You know, they've made up stuff you wouldn't believe. And how could you not like a guy and sitting 61 playing great in the field and playing playing his heart out? And uh, so I think that's probably the reason that that. Uh, He's not in the Hall of Fame because the writers, you know, you know, they voted, they, you know, they left him, yeah. left him out. Yeah. Well, you know what's crazy too? Look, I, uh, you know, he goes to the St. Louis Cardinals, he gets another crack in in World Series play, and it's really interesting because I've spoken to people who said nothing but incredibly nice things about yeah. Roger Maris, and yeah. you know, at the end of the day, the the bright lights in New York, he was good enough to be a two time MVP, he was good enough to hit sixty one home runs. And I've heard stories like that where all it took was one one guy in New York to decide he was going to be bigger than the player and write some nonsense and then never really face the music. It is just a shame how that can spread. It seems as wildly as that one did. Well, I don't know. It's, um, it's just a shame. He, he, was, he was a great player and a great teammate. And, uh, plus, he was really good in the field, too. You know, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was complete. So, you know, being a two-time MVP means he was a, right. a dominant player in his era, you know, and he won the one-shot deal. Yep. But he, he, he broke a hammock bone in his wrist in one spring and played with her all year. And it was his right hand. And, but when he, uh, he died for a ball in right center in uh, Lakeland. We were playing Detroit and made a catch. And uh, his hand out there was mm-hmm. kidding, and he jammed it, and he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't as good after that. Yeah. Um, and, and anyway, um, that's, but he played on several pennant winners there, sure did. five in a row, and sure then did. he went over to St. Louis, and he was pretty good. Mickey said he never got credit enough for his fielding. Right, because people just would look at a home run number and just say, oh, look, he plays right field, but he played much yeah. better than that. Now, 1962, boy, uh, Casey Stengel gave you some sage advice. Just come back and and do your job. Well, I, I don't know if, I, as a matter of fact, you might still be the answer to this. You might still be the only guy who was on the mound to end two World Series. Because in 1962, boy, did you come back all the way that year. Not only do you win 23 games, but you become a World Series MVP. Well, the, the 23 games by a right-hander was the most any right-hander had won since 1928, Ooh. I think. Uh, then two more in the, in the World Series, there were 25 wins. I think Pipgrass had 24 wins and one World Series win. Those are the 25 games that most any action right-handers has ever won. See, they're famous for real left-handers. It was built for left-handers. Right. <laughs> and you threw two, you threw 298 innings. You throw the postseason on. You went over 300 yeah. innings that year. Yeah. And I, I beat uh, Minnesota. With, Kilbrun, Patty, Nelson, Cat, and those guys. They were second place by five games. I was five and zero oh against them, and saved two in relief. And uh, and I didn't get invited to the Old Stars game this year. <laughs> now you you made one All Star team, correct? Uh, yes, I, I was named twice to the All Star team, and uh, that same year they had two two All Star right. games. That's right. And in '61, uh, 
I uh, I was uh, I was five and zero oh in uh, June, and I had a sore shoulder and was out for six weeks. I ended up sixteen and three, <laughs> so I didn't have a my early season record wasn't good enough to get picked on it. And then then I went when I got traded to Cleveland. I was ten and three at the All Star break, and uh, the Yankees had won the pennant, you know, the year before, and they picked the pitchers. <laughs> and the, and you, you think they'd pick me? No. You know, after, and, the first, and the first time I faced the Yankees as they traded me to Cleveland, I shut out shut out Whitey Ford three to nothing <laughs> on six on seventy pitches. Oh, is an all-time modern-day low for fewest amount of pitches. Well, that's it would have been 69. The first baseman dropped a pop fly right beside first base, and the next pitch, the guy pops it up in the same place. But uh, <laughs> 70 pitches. Doesn't even seem possible. But let me ask you about the 62 World Series. Coming yeah. off 1960, 1961, we talked about Maris and Mantle, and certainly the Yankees were a hell of a team that year as well. Were you nervous at all in the World Series? You know, what what is it after you've been in a World Series? Is it a little bit easier to pitch in a World Series after that? Well, I pitched in the final game in 60 and then in 61 and uh, Cincinnati and then in 62. And uh, I, I'll tell you what, it was, um, I was just thankful, thankful for the opportunity to pitch in the seventh game, win or lose, you know, if you lost the seventh game like that, a classic like Maz's mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh seventh game, well, I don't think uh, any manager would let, let you get near the man in the seventh game, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and lose, lose another one. So anyway, uh, Joe Gragiola was an announcer. You know, we were riding out to the ballpark, and he was on a radio show. We had it on and they asked him who he thought was going to win. And he said, uh, well, the Giants will win because Ralph Terry's already lost seven game. He'll choke up. Oh. Yeah, so I saw him out in the infield. He's during bang party. I said, Joe, hey, I see you picked me to choke up. No, I didn't. I said, hell, you didn't. We heard it on the bus on the radio coming out. He said, well, yeah, I had to say something, you know, blah, blah. Said, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, that's incredible that you guys were actually listening. That's great that you actually see him on the field. And boy, you showed him and everybody else. Yeah. Anyway, it was. Uh, but it was. Uh, it was. It was nerve. It was nerve. It wasn't any problem when you're on a mound because, yeah. you know, you've got a hitter there facing you. You got an immediate problem. Mm-hmm. And but when when your team's at bat, you're sitting on the bench. You know, you start thinking about what really think about the money, what it what it meant to each guy. You know. Right. And, Winner's share, loser's share, and then they get up and rattle bats and get a drink or something. Of course, the game went pretty fast. Sanford pitched, pitched straight, and uh, it was uh, you know a close ball game. And uh, so, but anyway, it was. Um, I was just thankful to you know get a get a second chance. And you got a hit in that World Series too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I got a base hit in the hole between uh, second and third. And I got a walk too. I was in the rally. I was on the first when um, when Kubek uh, yep. grounded the double play, and uh, there was one run scored. But we had the bases loaded again, and Mantle hit a. We we had runners on first and second. He got a base hit to center field, and uh, and Bobby held up a third, bases loaded, nobody out. 
and then Nelson Harrod hit a hit a bullet down third base line in Davenport, made a backhand play and set third to first, got him a double play and got him out of that jam. And uh, you know we had the bases loaded a couple times, but uh, anyway, then finally they, they took Sanford out and. Uh, yeah, I got a nice little base hit <laughs> and a walk. <laughs> That's that. It just added to the but, 62 World Series. But you know, another thing about that game, I had I only had three balls, three balls count on on any batter at one time, and I I, I two men out in the sixth. I had a perfect game going on two men out in the sixth. It's the longest streak of consecutive hitters retired in the seventh game of a World Series ever. Wow. So that um, was the uh, third baseman. I um, struck out on a 2-2 fastball, belt tie outside, and uh, umpire called the ball. And so the only guy had three balls on a state ahead of the hitters. Pretty good. Yeah, that's a good day, by the way. You're only 26 years old, too. You know, it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of amazing. You had led some baseball life by the time you get to that World Series at only 26 years old. Um, I do want to ask you a couple other things before I just ask you about some of your teammates as well. Were you on the bus with the Phil Lins incident? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The harmonica and everything yeah. everything that took place after that? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. What do you remember about that one? Oh, I was sitting in the back of the bus and um, on the right side, and he was over on the left side, and he's, he'd gotten the harmonica, and he was practicing on it, and we'd lost... We'd lost three games in a row in Chicago on a Sunday afternoon, and we were leaving the ballpark for the bus, and traffic was a jam. This is 64. Yogi was a manager, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he's playing Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, practicing his harmonica in the back. And, you know, when you lost, you're supposed to be quiet and not, you know, and all this and that, and take your heart. And uh, so Yogi yelled back something. Yeah, got that harmonica <laughs> up. And he said, what did he say? And Mickey said, he said, play louder. <laughs> 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 so he, he get, so before he put it away, he put, he gave it a little toot-toot, you know. And Yogi come back and was on top of it, and he flipped the harmonica up. Yogi, Yogi slaughtered it, and it, it hit Pepitone on the knee or something. He said, I thought Yogi was going to hit him, you know. <laughs> Listen, boys Boys will be boys when you're dealing yeah, in close any, quarters. Anyway, <laughs> he said, Lance said, um, Lance had had a good series. I think he was like 8 for 11 or 7 for 11, played really good. He played that series. And he said, what what the hell are you getting on me? Get on some of the big stars, you know. I played my ass off in this series, you know, you know them. They're about hustling, you know. So he, he talked right up to Yogi. He told me what he thought. I thought we were going to have a good one here. <laughs> did you ever see? I don't. You don't have to give me names necessarily, but did you ever see anything escalate even beyond that? I'm assuming you guys must have. You know, work hard, play hard. Um, anything that you remember, sort of in a clubhouse at any point, that you just said, "Oh my goodness, that escalated quickly." No, I missed. I missed one. I think in uh, in '58, the Yankees. Uh, clinched the pennant, and they were on a, I think they were on a train from Kansas City to New York. I think uh, Hauk was a coach. He got, he got in a fight with Ryan Duran. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. One of them crammed the other cigar in his face or something. Like that. 
<laughs> Again, I never, I never see it. That's the best one I heard. Of. <laughs> Again, boys will be boys. Um, yeah. Finish up without. Let me just ask you about some of your teammates, if you don't mind. And and I really sure. do appreciate the time tonight. Um, Tony Kubek is a very, very interesting man to me. I've had the pleasure to speak to Tony on the phone, but he's never done an actual interview. He doesn't really talk about his baseball career. He decided a long time ago he did the games on Saturdays. Speaking of Garagiola in that game of the week, and I thought he was fantastic as a broadcaster. But it seems that when he put away, he put it down for good. He's been very, very polite to me. I call him every couple of years just to ask one more time. Um, Tell me something about Tony Kubek, because he also retired very, very young. I think when um, when baseball went on a strike that one year, mm-hmm. and I think that really turned him off on baseball. Yeah. He, he, he really uh, he, he didn't like it at all. He was a hell of a player. You know, it's hard to be underrated when you play yeah. for the Yankees. But sure. he, you know, I, I, what what did uh, did Casey call him the milkshake twins? Him and Bobby Richardson. Yeah. <clears throat> he was a really good player, Tony Kubek. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, he was. He's a great teammate. He's, I'm still close with him and uh, Bobby Richardson. Yeah. We stay in touch. And, Bobby's uh, been on the show a few times. I love having a chance to speak with him. Uh, I've yeah. loved talking to Tony off the air. But, again, he's just sort of kept to himself, and I certainly respect that. Yeah. Let, let, me ask yeah. you, let me ask you about Yogi Berra. What's it like to throw to Yogi Berra? Oh, Yogi? Yogi's a great fastball hitter. You know, he's, uh, you know, I don't know, a year or two there, he hit more home runs and times he struck out. Yeah, and a great bad ball hitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I remember one time uh, Mike Forneely's a spitball pitcher, a reliever in Boston, threw him a spitter up at the plate and it bounced. You know, and, and Yogi whacked it on the bounce like a cricket player. You know, hit a bullet past first base and just foul. And Billy Martin yelled, Come on, yo, get a good hop. <laughs> it's it's a really it's a really hard thing to do to to hit yeah. more home runs and have fewer strikeouts and do it as a bad ball hitter. What did you yeah. think? Of, what did you think of Mickey Mantle, the guy? Uh, obviously, a great baseball player. What did you think of him as a guy? Oh, I loved him. He was. We grew up in the same neighborhood and uh, neighboring towns. He was a senior. I was in eighth grade, and we're signed by the same scout. We both oh. played for. Baxter Springs Wheels kids growing up and uh, he you know he, he he was really I miss him was he so good that you heard about him a couple of towns over like was he was his reputation that big even in high school the first time I heard about him I started out as I was a catcher in junior high and then I and then played American Legion ball and freshman and then finally I got to pitch as a sophomore but I we had I had a friend, a pitcher who lived down the street from me, Norm Stanley, and he used to catch me through hard right hand pitcher and uh, they went and played commerce. And I said, uh well, they came home and we lost. I said, How'd you do, Norm? And he said, I did okay but that that uh mantle he had two home runs and hit him in the football bleachers. I lost three to two. <laughs> That's the first time I heard about about Mickey. And then I saw him play football and basketball all through high school. He, he was special. He was recruited. Uh, he was recruited by uh, Oklahoma mm-hmm. as a as a running back. He was a halfback. But uh, oh, but what was uh, Coach Bud? Uh, Bud Wilkerson? Uh, no, not Bud. Yeah, but 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 uh, the coach was the guy was all American at OU, and he went to uh, Texas for yes. years. Yes. 
he was uh, he was a great quarterback and a great coach for Longhorns for a long time. So anyway, he said uh, years later he said uh, Daryl Royal. That's who it was. You're right, Daryl Royal. He said, <clears throat> said Daryl, remember that time when uh, <laughs> uh, when when you showed me around the campus, you know, and, and uh, I was being recruited, and Royal didn't remember me. He said. Well, yeah, but you weren't Mickey Mantle then. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did not I did notice you said something that you really miss him. Were you around Mickey at the end? Oh yeah, well I saw him at, uh, and uh, we were in a in a, in a, in a tournament in Austin, and Ben Willie Darrell and Ben Crenshaw, Willie Nelson, and Darrell Royal, and they raised money for the poor kids of East Austin. They did it for years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so Mickey was on a on a par three hole, and he did a shot with each group that came through. And so I came through there, and um, he had nicked himself shaving, you know, and he was, and he, was kind of, he had a handkerchief there, and he dabbed it against the blood, and the blood, the blood looked brown. I said, mm-hmm. "Man, your blood is funny looking color. It looked like it'd be red, you know." And he said, "Oh, that's my liver, you know." That's, that's there. But it, uh, they say it'll get better. But if it didn't, that's when he had cancer, you know. He, yeah, he, Mick was, he went, he went young and so did Roger. Yes, and Ro- yeah, no doubt about it, Roger. Uh, again, quickly. It, it is amazing. I, I'm just going to tell you, Phil Rizzuto was the guy a few years ago. I spoke to Phil 15, 16 years ago. And, yeah. and I had asked him for the first time if it was really, it was really interesting. Look, his playing career and then calling as many Yankee games as he did. But I, I remember asking him about old-timers days and how all of a sudden you look around and there aren't as many as your teammates around anymore. And, I, and I, I don't know why I did, and I've asked a bunch of players this since. Do you ever dream about being younger, about all of a sudden you find yourself you know, in your dreams a young man again, you're playing baseball again, your friends are around you. Has, has that ever happened to you? You, you want to hear something funny? I used to... I used to uh, became a golf professional and started playing tournaments and uh, I'd look down at my slacks and I'd think I should be looking down with a glove on my hand and pinstripes, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought I got over that. But, you know, now when I dream, uh, I don't dream about baseball, I dream about golf. You do? You know, That's interesting. I, I dream about uh, Mickey Mantle once in a while, yeah. you know, Mick and stuff he did, but I don't dream about baseball. Is it, again, here's the other thing that you find out as well, what, what really sort of the inability to pick up a phone and call some of your friends, they're not here anymore. And, and it is, it's, it's unfortunate and it's sad, but it's also interesting to hear players sort of say that that's the thing they miss. You know, you miss the camaraderie of playing. You miss the yeah. post-career things where all of a sudden it's at a golf tournament or charity event and there they are. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Duke Snyder a few years ago, Carl Erskine just last year, there's a reality that comes with that, that, you know, you mm-hmm. just, it, it's not the way it used to be in that regard. Yeah, I've got a friend uh, that he's a collection member of BA. He grew up around here, and he, he knows uh, Carl Erskine. He got to know him mm-hmm. pretty good. And uh, anyway, then I got I got another friend. He's good friends with Ted Lepsio up in Boston. Okay. And, uh, and Dan Ray, he does, uh, I don't know if you heard of him, he does a, he got a show out of Boston, okay. REA, Dan Ray. But uh, anyway, yeah, these old timers, it's fun. Uh, 
Um, I didn't get invited this year, so I don't, you know, the Yankees. So I miss, you know, not seeing some of the guys. Yeah, it it is interesting too, though. You're in a that fraternity of World Series MVPs as well. I mean, and then you just mentioned you became a professional golfer, which is a whole nother extension of the competition part of your life, which is kind of amazing. And by the way, tell everybody what your handicap is these days. Well, I'm a five or six uh, now. I'm 82 <laughs> and trying to trying to hustle these farmers out here in western Kansas. <laughs> and they're hard to beat and harder to collect from. <laughs> that, that is that is very that's a, that's about as good a golf line as there is. Hard to beat and harder to collect from. Well, Mr. Terry, look, you, you've led some fascinating life. I mean, the people that you've been around, the Hall of Famers, and obviously the big game moments. Uh, playing in pinstripes, playing in the Yankee Stadium, not the newer version, obviously, and playing up in Fenway Park. and I mean, it, it, it really is incredible. The one thing you kind of missed, you, well, you know, what is interesting is you do go to the Mets at the very end, do you not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that experience? Well, well, with the Mets? Yeah. Well, you know, it was a lot of fun. They, they had, uh, they, they'd come up with the, they, the, come up with some young players and mm-hmm. they rushed a lot of them in there too soon and uh, they, I was there when Kuzman and uh, and Nolan Ryan was a rookie Seaver. and uh, Tom Seaver and uh, Tug McGraw was there. I taught Tug McGraw how to throw the screwball. By the way, you're the third person who's told me that. You, you're the one who got Tug McGraw to throw the screwball and throw it right, correct? Somebody else told you that? Yes, sir. Yeah. I had a couple of other people tell me that, look, it's really amazing that when you make a stop like that, you weren't really there all that long. Right. But the impact that you had, if if you're the guy who told Tug McGraw, this is what you need to do and this is how you're going to get players out, boy, good for you. You paid for yourself. Kuzman <laughs> said the other guy told him how to pitch. So it's <laughs> Even better. By the way, Jerry was just on the show last week. We just spoke to Jerry Kuzman last week. Yeah, really? Yep. How's, how's he doing? He's doing well. He lives up in Wisconsin. You know, people don't realize he won 222 games in his career. Oh, yeah. He was uh, he was Seaver and Kuzman. He was a great clutch pitcher. And you were a lot like that with Whitey Ford, that lefty-righty combo. You know, sometimes yeah. the yeah. other guys, Seaver and Ford, get, you know, headlines in Hall of Fame careers, no doubt about it. But you have yeah. to have a counter to that. And you and Jerry Kuzman were absolutely that. Yeah. Well, I pitched, I pitched some pretty important games in the – Season, I know in uh, '60. Uh, you know, let's see, you got a pretty good game there at the end. Uh, I think '61. Yeah, I beat the Orioles. Came in, they were battling us. '66. Let's see, I pitched some, several, a couple of pennant clinchers. Right. Some. Uh, I beat I beat Detroit in '61. Yeah, that's what they come in. Frank Larry showdown series. I beat him on a Saturday, and then and I in '61 I beat in '60 I beat uh, Baltimore. They come in for I shut them out two nothing on a two hitter. And you got to win the pennant. There's no playoffs. You either win yeah. the pennant or you don't. You can win 106 games and still go home. Yeah, those showdown series, home and home at the end of the season, yep. those were our playoff games. That's right. That's exactly right. And if you lose, yeah. you go lick your wounds for a whole nother year and you get no shot of postseason glory. Yeah, so that's right. one more for you. What's it like to win a World Series in New York? And I know the Yankees had won. Uh, it doesn't really ever get old. But but what's it like, you know, to be a World Series champion and do it with the New York Yankees? Well, the, um, we, we won – 
We clinched in 61, and we won the series in 61 and 62 on the road. (laughs) So we didn't have the big celebration, Mm -hmm. you know. So they they won so many, you know, it was like... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you end up with two World Series in 61 and 62. You're in a few others on top of that, 60, 63, 64. There are not a lot of people that have an opportunity to say they made it to five straight World Series. Yeah, I was on seven pennant winners and in spring training with an eighth. So, you know, that champagne burns your eyes. It yeah, stings well, your eyes. <laughs> it's, it's the price you pay for the greatness, no doubt about it. Well, Mr. Terry, you've led a hell of a life, as I said. I really appreciate your time tonight. Um, I, I Keep going with the golf. Just, just keep taking their money whenever they want to pay up. Just keep grabbing it. Uh, whenever you get an opportunity to. I hope at some point we get a chance to catch up again, if you don't mind. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this. And as I said. Yeah, I got one I got one for you. Yeah. And I I got in. I qualified for the senior tour. They only had eight spots. I got in a, in a playoff with the three of us for the last two spots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, got, I, I got in on the, on about, uh, the third hole. And I got in, and this guy's went on. And uh, somebody once said, well, what a difference one shot, one stroke can make in your life. Now I'm exempt, you know, and everything gets mm-hmm. tourist cars. And right. Everything's fantastic, you know. And I, I traveled and played in five senior British Opens and played in Japan and played twice, two years on the South African tour. And, you know, just, you know, got the cruise around. I, I said, what a difference one pitch can make in your life. <laughs> Let me, so be honest, if, if if you hadn't been on the mound in 62 and done as well, what do you think 1960 would have meant all these years later? I, I don't know. I'm not talking about not ever getting over it. But, yeah. but did, did you almost need 1962? You know, you know something? It was really a blessing because I, I experienced the low and the high, and I, I can't brag because I lost a big one. And, and I don't have to take any guff, you know, or mm-hmm. heat because I won a big one. Right. So I'm in the saddle. I'm in the rocking chair. <laughs> so um, it, was, um, it was quite an experience. What's more nerve-wracking, yeah. pitching in a game seven or actually over, you know, standing over an eight-foot putt to try to win a golf tournament? Oh, game seven. Yeah. You know, you, you talked about U.S. Open Masters. They have four majors every year, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's only one in baseball. And you have other teammates. You know, there are people that are relying on you, too. I'd imagine that's, that's part correct. of it, too. That's correct. That yeah. is right. I yeah. mean, it is a, it's a big load. And the, the pitchers, it's, um, yeah. I, had, uh, I had great teammates. I think uh, they were happier for me than anybody else. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. That's when you know that you're beloved by your teammates, that, you know, that moment yeah. is... is they understand the magnitude for you on top of everything else, as happy as they yeah. are for themselves. That is interesting that your teammates obviously were well aware. Look, before yeah. free agency and everything else, you guys were together for a number of years. You guys did everything yeah. for seven months, seven months yeah. plus when you were playing in the postseason the way that you guys did. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, it was uh, Joe DiMaggio says the greatest seventh game he ever saw pitched. Wow. And... Um, it was, I made the ESPN clincher team for the greatest seventh pitcher performance in a seventh game. That is it, brother. It doesn't get any better so, than that. It's so funny you mentioned Joe DiMaggio. When, do you remember the first Old Timers Day? Because at Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium, 
the guy, they all came back. They all came back yeah. to participate in that in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember when Marilyn Monroe came to spring training with him. <laughs> and she wanted to meet the, uh, I mentioned in the in my book, you know, <laughs> I think I did. I anyway, Marilyn wanted to meet the Yankees, you know, everybody had to get dressed. And she came in the clubhouse and met all the Yankees. Uh, she was a beautiful lady. And uh, so anyway, the, the wives the wives were really, really <laughs> mad about that. Marilyn Monroe getting called Yankee Clubhouse. Listen, there are so many things when your life takes twists and turns, and especially in New York City, when you talk about, you know, the nightlife and the fanaticism. Uh, the Yankees were the only game in town. You know, when the Giants yeah. and Dodgers leave, until the Mets come back in 1962, the Yankees are the only game in town. Yeah. My dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. He didn't like you guys very much. That was that was a that was a sad thing in baseball when yeah. the Dodgers left Brooklyn. Yeah. That that should never have happened. You know, the city didn't do anything and the state didn't do anything and and he you know, O'Malley he gave them their chance and they didn't do anything, so off they went. Yeah. Well, as I said, the Yankees is the only game in town, boy, did they give people their money's worth, no doubt about it. That was a yeah. an incredible team. Sir, you've led an incredible life. I really do appreciate your time tonight, and thanks very much for spending this much time with me. I, I hope the golf game is going well, and I really appreciate you looking back on some of the things and some of the moments in your career. All right. Stay in touch. All right, Mr. Terry, I will do that. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Bye. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Bye. Quick reminder, tokafootball.com and dbatatlanta.com to get your free one-hour, one-on-one session today. And the last of our three guests, surely the least well-known, but another man in his 80s whose career and life is more interesting than you know. What if I told you, better yet, he tells you, what part he played in Roger Maris's 61 home run season of 1961 and tells you about being the man who threw the first pitch in the brand-new Shea Stadium in 1964 and how he invented the bullpen on that day. And, of course, his firsthand account of that fall day in 1960 when he was the man who challenged Ted Williams in his historic final at-bat in his unquestionable Hall of Fame career. How close was Ted to tipping his cap? Jack will tell you. He will fill you in on how he got his lifelong nickname, Fat Jack, and will actually talk about his best friend, Tracy Stallard, and how much he misses him since his passing in 2017. It's all here and more. Here he is, John Howard Fat Jack Fisher. with Mantle hitting behind him, you're not going to pitch around him. When he did hit the home run, that just made the score 3-2. That's the way I looked at it. Well, this is the big one, no doubt about it. This is the one we've been talking about, dreaming about, waiting for. Opening day at Jay Stadium. I like to think about the first strikeout. Let's go. Let's talk about it. Let's go. Yeah, that was Roberto Clemente. There you are. There you <laughs> go. First inning. Seriously, biggest moments in baseball history, and it all happened in a very short period of time. But we're going to talk a little bit about his career before we get to those moments in particular. He's a man that pitched around and with uh, some Hall of Famers, certainly in his career. We'll touch on that as well as we welcome in Jack Fisher, 
to the show today. Jack, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm just fine, Chris. So people might not know, in the still before the Yankees sort of weren't the Yankees for a few years at the late end of the 60s, they certainly were in the 50s and 60 and 61. But you guys in Baltimore, uh, with a really, really young pitching staff, you guys took them down to the wire. I mean, that was a race that really probably wasn't supposed to be happening in 1960, correct? Well, we uh, the, the uh, four years that I was with uh, the Orioles, uh, we played 22 games against them, and I believe every year we were 11 and 11. We we broke even with them every year, so we we did play them tough, and they had a great great team. 1960, though, you guys did really with the young. I th- were you guys all 22 and younger as a starting staff, and and that was really Yankees had to work to win in 1960. Well, they had to work up until. Uh, they they came into Baltimore with three weeks to go in the season, and they had a two-game lead. And uh, we beat them three in a row in Baltimore. And they left Baltimore one behind us with about two and a half weeks to go. And to make a long story short, uh, they, they won their last 15 oh, games, goodness. including four over us in New York later on. <laughs> So you so, ju- uh, you just angered them that weekend. <laughs> we did. We woke up the bear. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'm going to talk about facing teams like that coming up in a couple of seconds. But the first historical moment that you had in your career, uh, really, and, and probably why you still, and I'm, I'm assuming you still get letters and you still get pictures and you're asked to sign, and uh, because you have a link with Ted Williams that I'm not even sure people sort of know about, but it is certainly a piece of footage that a lot of people have seen. Can you set the stage for Ted Williams' last game in professional baseball? You are on the mound for the Baltimore Orioles. Well, it started out, it was a, a really cold, dank day. And uh, my my uh, my roommate, Steve Barber, started the game. And Ted had announced uh, before the game that this was going to be his last game. And uh, that the, they were going to go to New York, I think, for the last series. But he wanted to finish in in Boston, so he announced his last game. And uh, and the first inning, Steve goes out there, and I think they score a couple runs off of him. He's got bases loaded, and get and then all of a sudden I'm in the game. <laughs> And I go out and I got out and got him out of that jam. We did, they didn't score any more runs in the, in the first. And to show you the difference in the game today, I uh, pitched all the way into the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but when he hit the home run, we actually were uh, two runs ahead. And uh, there was nobody on base and and. Of course, he had Jackie Jensen hitting behind him with that short left field wall. So I was not about to, to walk him. And so I challenged him. I went right after him, right after him with, uh, with all fastballs. And, and he, hit the, he hit the third fastball up out of the ballpark. And the wind was blowing in. I, did, I really didn't think he could hit it into that wind, but he did. He got it into their bullpen. And there might be about 500,000 people that say they were there that day. Because oh, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what do you remember the crowd really being or not being that day? Oh, at best, it was uh, half full. Yeah. Yeah, there are people who say it was around 10,000, 11,000. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say, what's that whole thirty thousand? Yeah, something like so that. It's probably even yeah, less. And ten, fifteen thousand, somewhere around there. So, do you understand when you hear that he's, re- you know, that's it for him? He's not going to go to New York. He's going to end it there. Um, as a baseball fan, as a kid who went to games with your uncle, I- I'm assuming you knew the history of Ted Williams. You're a, I don't know, a 21 year old guy at that point. Uh, you challenged him, so good for you. And I'm sure you you certainly garnered respect not only from him but from other people. But the significance of of that at batter that day was it? Could you feel it, or did you have to try to make it normal? I had no that that the the idea of him coming up for a possibility his last time at bat did not cross my mind at all. All I was thinking about is I'm two runs up in the game. And and I'm pitching a, a game to win, yeah. and uh, and the bottom bottom line on that in the ninth inning they got the bases loaded and one out <laughs> after he hit the home run, uh, and that put us one run up uh-huh. once again to show you what a difference in the the game is today. And we had Hoyt Wilhelm to come in from the pen if we wanted, but Richards left me out on the mound. And I threw a, 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 I think Willie Tasby hit a ground ball, two hopper to Brooks Robinson to third base. He threw over to second base. Second baseman got the ball hung up in his glove and threw the ball up into the stands. And I lose the game oh. in the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> Boy, had I won the game, it would have been absolutely perfect. Yeah. You know what's even crazy, too? Because everybody, because the announcement was made, and I think there was even a little pregame ceremony, People were trying to figure out if he was going to take a curtain call. He didn't tip his cap. He didn't take curtain calls. I remember that very well, yeah. yeah. And I I did back off the mound, went to the rosin bag, and, you know, lollygagged around out there after he had run the bases. And finally I looked into the dugout, and he just motioned to me, go ahead and pitch. I'm I'm not going to tip my hat. And then I think his – Am I correct about this? Didn't they put him out in left field and then take him out of the game? I don't yeah, know if it was Carol yeah, Hardy, but uh, they replaced Carol him. Carol Hardy. Right, and to find out if he might tip his cap on the way into the dugout at that point. <laughs> he didn't then no. either. <laughs> did he really – did he tell you, go ahead, I'm good, go pitch? Like, was there a signal? He just kind of waved to me, uh, you know, throw the pitch. <laughs> there was no signal. No, I mean, but you could tell – by his motions, he wanted the game to go ahead and go ahead and uh, pitch the ball. Yeah, it's an it's an incredible piece of history, and the footage has been seen. But there always has to, as we we've done on this show, somebody's got to be the other side of it. And it sounds like good spirits. I'm assuming you have signed a lot of those pictures. I'm assuming those have you've come across those for fifty plus years. Oh, I've, I've signed quite a few. Yes. Yeah. Well, listen. At the end of the day, you challenged one of the greatest, if not the greatest, hitter that anybody of those generations had seen play. And I consider him the best hitter I ever faced. Really? Yes. Play coverage, or he just knew the zone better than anybody. He was going to make you he, make a mistake. He, you, you could feel he was coming to the bat when he was in the on deck circle. Right. I mean, he you he caught your eye <laughs> when he was over there kneeling. <laughs> Yeah, it's called presence. He has it. Whatever it is, Ted Williams had it. He, he did. Yeah. He really did. So I'm going to ask you about some of the guys you played with and against in a second, but let's talk about the another moment that you're actually known for as well, uh, this one against the New York Yankees and Roger Maris. You can't hit 61 unless you hit what? <laughs> you got to hit 60. Yeah, and Jack Fisher was a part of that as well. What do you remember about that day? 
That was absolute. Once again, I'm two runs ahead in the game, but that was not a challenge uh, spot there. Uh, uh, Gus, once again, was my catcher and called for a curveball, and I had a decent curveball. And when I got my arm up just ready to release it, I thought, I think I'll take a little bit off. <laughs> and what a bad <laughs> statement that was mm-hmm. because uh, it came in and just floated up about uh, belt high right down the middle of the plate. And, I mean, I could have hit that ball out. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets 60 off you. I, I've got to assume all that year, because Mantle bows out at that point. He has the problem with his health, and I think he finished at 54. When right. you're playing in Baltimore for the Orioles, you're certainly going to play the Yankees a number of times. As a baseball fan, even though you're trying to do your job and get the New York Yankees of 1961 out, are you aware of sort of, like, are you enough of a baseball fan, even though it's your livelihood, to understand the magnitude of what's happening in New York City that year? Uh, well, sure. I mean, you, you know, you read the newspapers, and uh, and it was, uh, you know, anytime you played them, you knew uh, something big was <laughs> was going to happen, or wasn't going to happen, and you didn't want to be a part of that that happened. Right. Yeah. It, it's also. You know, Roger's a two-time MVP, a back-to-back MVP, and I, whether he's supposed to be in the Hall of Fame, people have debated that for a really, now, a very, very long time. He was one great ball player. I'll tell you, he was a great base runner. He was an excellent outfielder. I don't know what more you want, other than, what, his batting average is below 300. I guess that's the one thing that they do hold back on him. Yeah. Can I ask, did you end up with any kind of relationship with Ted Williams or Roger Maris? Was there ever conversations later on in life and... How did, how did that I, work? I, not not with Maris, but with Ted. Uh, I went back uh, um, years later. Uh, they had an old timer day game, and I guess it probably was the last time Ted ever had a uniform on. Mm. And uh, and I was invited up to go to Boston for that, and uh, we met in the hotel and. Uh, and here, uh, the, the amazing thing out to me is that when I walked into uh, into the room, he recognized me. Fat Jack, what are you doing here? <laughs> for those, and, uh, yeah, for those who don't know, the Fat Jack moniker. Who was the guy who actually gave you that? Actually, that was Hoy Wilhelm. <laughs> Hoy Wilhelm through Fat Jack. I was Fat Jack before Jack Nicholas was Fat Jack. <laughs> <laughs> you were the original. At that point. Original. So you also have one other. Uh, I think it was April 17th, 1964. Now, just for a little background, my dad was a big, my mom and dad were big Brooklyn Dodger fans, and the Dodgers leave, and they could never root for the Yankees, so they were waiting for the New York Mets to come in. 1962, the Polo Grounds. But then eventually they said, well, hold on, we're going to build this beautiful new stadium out in Flushing, New York, and we're going to call it Shea Stadium. And you actually were a part of history that day as well, were you not? Well, I bet the first game there. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to be given the ball to, to go start the game. I'm going to ask you about Casey Stengel in a second, but um, was Shea Stadium in 1964, because it wasn't really as as they got ready to, uh, to tear it down. It wasn't really. But in 1964, was that sort of a jewel? Was that was it nice enough where even players said, wow, this is kind of incredible for, for baseball well, it, to have? It, 
It was uh, one of the stadiums, uh, I guess you what the, the word they use is a cookie-cutter uh-huh. stadium. Yep. Uh, that, uh, about three or four other big league teams had built new ballparks and pretty much uh, built it the, the same way. I thought it was a very fair ballpark to, to pitch in. Uh, I mean, there, there, you had to hit the ball fairly well to to get a home run. It wasn't anything like they're building today, where you know you you, you can just bloop the ball out right. To, to right field uh, in in the new Yankee Stadium. Well, of course, the old Yankee Stadium wasn't that bad, that easy either. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but no, I, I I enjoyed that that ballpark. So Casey gives you that opening day assignment. Uh, first pitch strike, I believe, that day, correct? First pitch was a strike, right. And the first batter popped up. And I'm assuming it's 50,000 in that building at that point. Because oh, it's loaded, yeah. It was. Uh, in fact, that's where it got started. With uh, We used to warm up before the ball game. Uh, they had a little uh, pitching rubber. Uh, out in front of the the dugouts uh, on both sides, mm-hmm. and both starting pitchers used to warm up, right, right, you know, thrown against the screen uh, towards the screen, uh, the and the uh, behind home plate, and uh, there was such a mob on that field that I went to Casey and I said, Casey, if I warm up here. I'm going to kill somebody. Somebody's going to walk right, right between where, where I'm throwing. I said, "Do you mind if I go out in the bullpen and warm up?" And he said, "No, well, I don't see why not." So I went out and, and warmed up in the bullpen uh, out there, and lo and behold, from there on, practically everybody did it. That is correct. <laughs> so you are even. And by the way, there's another piece of New York Met history we'll talk about in a second. So you get the first guy to pop up, and it's the Pittsburgh Pirates that day, and a guy by the name of Willie Stargell? A guy by the name of Willie Stargell. Well, that happened later on in the game. I like to talk about, I think it was either, I believe it was the first inning, the very first strikeout recorded in Shea Stadium. Nice. Uh, uh, I got, and his name was, I think, Roberto Clemente oh, or something goodness. like that. We're, there are so, a lot of Hall of Famers <laughs> names being thrown around here today, Jack. Yeah. So you get Clemente, so that's the first strike. Yeah. You throw the first pitch, you get and the then, first strike. And then, uh, I'm, uh, actually, another time I, I was two runs ahead in the game, <laughs> and and uh, and Willie comes up, and, and I had uh, two strikes on him, and uh, like I said, I had a decent curveball. And I threw him a curveball, a good one. That had he not made contact, the ball actually would have bounced on home plate. That's how low it was. And he went down and dug that thing out and, and hit it out and uh, over the fence in right field to, uh, for for a home run. First first one in Chase and, Stadium history. Uh, and it wasn't a I good take team. I it back. I believe that did tie the game up. Okay. So it's but they were not good in six. They were historically bad in sixty two and sixty three. When you go over there, when you become a member of the New York Mets. Uh, you knew it's going to be tough sledding. You're not going to win a lot of games. You're certainly not going to get a lot of run support. Can I ask what the what the were you happy that you were in New York? Was it hey this this enthusiastic fan base with the new stadium? What's it like for a pitcher to know that you almost have to be perfect to find your way to wins at that point? Well, I never stepped on the mound. I ever thought I was, uh, I was going to lose a game. Mm-hmm. 
never did. And uh, so, therefore, the, that thought never entered my mind. Uh, you, you do uh, you do have to pitch it a little differently. You take a little bit more chances. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll uh, you'll you'll put guys on base, uh, pitching around batters to try to get the. Uh, an easier batter than if you're with a club that scored a lot of runs. So uh, that's 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 about the only thing that changes that uh, your uh, process of of uh, how to how to uh, win a ball game. But when your time with the Mets is done, you actually leave a little bit more of a legacy, do you not? Because the New York Mets, a few years after you go, they win a World Series, and you were part of. I would say kind of a large part of how the New York Mets really turned it around to become. And by the way, I don't know if you know, today's the 50th anniversary of the Mets clinching a World Series against the Baltimore Orioles in 1969. Today is the day that Cleon Jones caught that fly ball from uh, Davey Johnson. I'll be darned. I didn't realize this was the day. Yep. But I did have something to do with it. Yeah, they they got uh, a couple of pretty good players for me. Uh, for me and Tommy Davis, I think we're traded to the to the White Sox in, uh, after the 67 season. And Gil Hodges so, uh, was probably the guy at seen Gil Andrew Hodges, play, right? That was one of the first moves he made. Yeah. That's how smart he was. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, there's not a Met on that team who I haven't spoken to that said that, if not for Gil Hodges, just even changing the mentality of the culture. You know, you can only be a lovable loser for so long. Then you're just kind mm-hmm. of a loser. You're just losing a That's lot of right. games. Yeah. yeah. And Gil Hodges' his personality and, and the idea that he was going back home to New York was such a big thing for that. But it was Tommy Agee and was it Walt Weiss part of that deal? Oh, Walt Weiss, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly two key parts to that thing. Now, you had a chance many years later when they were tearing down Shea Stadium. I believe this to be true. Did you not go back to see Shea Stadium? I went back. I went back when they were about halfway tearing it down. And one of the newspapers asked me to come back mm-hmm. to just stand there by uh, the fence out on the, out on the road uh, with me looking at the ballpark half torn down. Uh, forlorn, you know, uh, yeah. but uh, of course the new ballpark has been built and it's a beautiful park too. Is, is it? I, I don't know if sad. I don't know if you know what your emotion was, but um, it's it's a fairly long period of time. But I've always seen it's kind of crazy. Baseball players who've retired. It's really strange. I ask you, hey, can you believe it's 50 years, 55 years, oh, 60 I, years? I, that, that just blows my mind yeah. you know, when I look back and, and say how many years have expired. It's 60 years since you pitched for the Baltimore Orioles coming out of the gate as a 21-year-old. Right. In 1959, I came up. Mm-hmm. It, does it feel like that, or is it? Well, I've been I've been fairly fortunate. I've been healthy. Okay. And uh, and that that means a lot that you know I can still keep myself busy, yep. retired, and uh, I, you know play a lot of golf and hang around with uh, uh, you know uh, some buddies around here, and we shoot shoot uh, shoot the bull, and <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's a good life. Good. I'm just going to ask you about a couple of the people that you played with or against, if you don't mind. I'll give you a name, and then you tell me what comes to mind. So you okay. had a chance to play with Willie Mays. You said Ted right. was the best hitter that you ever saw. What What are your thoughts when you hear the name Willie Mays? First of all, he had a uh, a body like, like a... a uh, uh, bodybuilder, you know, you'd think when when he when he stripped down his his 
upper body, his shirt. When he took his shirt off, you, I mean, it was it was like a like a V. And I know that the man never picked up more than ten pounds in his life, but but he had he had just a tremendous body on him, and uh, and he, he instinctually he probably was the best ball player. Uh, I'm talking about like on a, a fly ball to the outfield. He had uh, I'd say maybe just. Of course, he was pretty much up in age then too, mm-hmm. but but he had about an average arm in the outfield. If he had a chance to to really just wait for the ball to come down and then make a throw, he's love to make. He, he he probably wouldn't even come close to the base that he's thrown to. But if he was on a dead run and rolled over and came up throwing, he would hit it with a dime. Uh, he just everything was instinctual to him. Is, is yeah. you played with Willie McCovey, um, Hall of Famer, but kind of I've always thought kind of a little bit overlooked. He was sort of as dangerous as there was in the game at that point, was he not? Well, at that point, at that point, everybody on our ball club, if the game was on the line, he was the guy we wanted to have at the plate. Willie, he would hit the ball hard somewhere when the game was on the line. And such and the first thing I think about Willie is what a nice guy. Just a super guy. And uh but but he was a great, great clutch hitter. Probably got robbed of a lot of home runs in candlestick. That was a that place was a pair. Oh man. I'll tell you when I was with the Mets, he hit one off of me with that wind blowing out the right field. <laughs> he hit one off of me. He got it all and got it high. And I, it probably broke about four windshields out in that parking lot. <laughs> I mean, he cleared everything off of me. Was that the one that even to this day you still think of as the biggest, the biggest one, like the one where you even you're laughing about it because it was such a, such a. Oh, the, the, that, that definitely was the longest one I ever gave up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about Brooks Robinson? Brooks, another great guy, uh, a vacuum cleaner at third base. We had had he and Ron Hanson over on that side of the infield, and all you had to do is just uh, get them to hit the ball on the ground over there, and one of those two would get it, usually Brooks, and he had the quickest hands of anybody I ever saw. He could get that ball out of his glove because he really didn't have a strong arm, but he got the ball out of his glove so quickly. And, uh, I mean, especially like on the double play ball, mm-hmm. uh, he'd get the ball to the second baseman and it'd always be right there, waist high, uh, right, right for the, for the second baseman to turn the double play. What was it like to play for Casey? Casey was good to me. You know, he put on a front, pretty good front for the, for the news media and, and the fans and everything. But when he wanted to talk baseball, he, he, he he knew, he knew what he was talking about. But Casey gave me the ball every four days, and that's all I ever wanted. Were you ever like? Did I, I've always wondered about this. So there's old timers days, and you're a 21, 22 year old guy. And if there was an old timers day in Baltimore, an old timers day in New York, now the Mets didn't have a franchise, but they might be bringing guys back that had New York ties. Um, when you're a young guy, like Casey had been around forever. It's crazy to think of all the things that Casey Stengel had seen in his. Were there ever any conversations? Were you ever curious about 1920s or 1930s or 1940s baseball at all? Would any of those conversations ever happen? 
Never, I, I'm sure they happen, but I was never around to hear it firsthand. And what about uh, you also, Johnny Bench, at the beginning of his career, because you're in Cincinnati, could you tell that he was just different? Oh, I was just as talented as could be. There were two guys that I ran across that I thought could be uh, smart enough to be a president of a big national corporation, a General Motors or something like that. <laughs> Excuse me. Johnny Bench was one of them and Tom Seaver's the other. Mm. Just, just two really, really smart, smart guys. It's, it's and funny. talented. Yeah, I was just going to say, right, because and, and certainly the catcher position, you talk about leadership. You know, if you have a guy who's talented but also can lead, a guy who's smart enough to know I'll be able to help everybody out, not just with the way I play, but maybe even before or after a game, that's really heady praise. That's really interesting that you made note of that over the course of your career, that there were a couple of guys who were just a little bit different in that capacity too. They, yeah, they were. Of course, the guy that I hung around with more when I was with Cincinnati was, was Pete mm-hmm. Rose. And... Uh, and uh, Pete, if I if we if you had asked me to start building a team behind me to go play uh, behind me for the rest of my life, Pete Rose would be my first player I'd pick, and he could play any place he wanted to play. He Pete had the ability to concentrate, absolutely concentrate, on every pitch of every game he ever played in, whether it was offensively or defensively. He was in that game. And that's tough to do. Day in and day out. for, for Every day. Every day. Yeah. So were you saddened with all the stuff that happened to him? I don't know how your relationship it's a, it's a It's a real shame. It really is. Uh, I know, you know, Pete was, uh, Pete loved to gamble. I mean, heck, he and I used to, we used to go to the racetrack together on off days. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'd be there making my $5 bets and he'd be making his $100 bets. <laughs> Because obviously he was making a lot more money than I was. But uh, he loved to gamble. And I guess he probably thought that uh, even if he did get caught, they'd slap his hand or right. something like that. But well, it is the greatest What he did was wrong. Yeah, what he did was wrong. So he's a buddy of mine. But they had been telling you guys that forever. Oh, every clubhouse has yeah. that sign yep. in it. Yeah. It's also crazy, too, because I don't know you know, what he thinks this many years later. He certainly denied it for a long time. But there are people who believe, had he been given a chance to really manage, learn how to manage, would he have been really, really good at it? To manage? Yeah. Sure he would. He knew the game inside out. But he did he have the personality? Everything. Sure he did. Okay. Sure he did. I mean, he could, he could, he could be serious with you and... And he could also joke with you, mm-hmm. and, and uh, yeah, he would—he would have been a, a good manager. Had have you heard about, unfortunately, what's going on with Tom Seaver these days? Yes, I have. He and Buddy Harrelson. Yes, as a matter of fact, I spoke to Buddy's wife just uh, a week ago. I did not realize. Did you? I did. I did not realize sort of what was going on with Buddy. I knew about Tom. Yeah. And they just did a special about Tom. And for those who don't know, Tom is basically retired from public life. His, he and his wife right, Nancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Are you? You're you're 80 years old. Um, one of the things that Phil Rizzuto told me many years ago is he said sort of the thing that made him 
you said you're lucky you have your health but he did say that the one thing that does happen when you get older um a lot of your peers a lot of your friends are no longer around and and That's you can't true. yeah is it is it something that you've thought about or do you miss sort of the aspect of being able to see certain guys and well probably the one the, the one that i miss the most is a, a, a buddy of mine that i played with in new york and we were uh we were roommates it was uh tracy stallard and he and i probably stuck together more after baseball than i did come close to with any other player I mean, at my uh, my club that I play golf, I always had him come up to, for member guests and and things like that. We and I'd go down and visit him uh, down in Virginia, and uh, yeah, we we really stuck close together. When he passed away, what, about a year and a half ago, close to two years now, uh, it uh, it kind of shook me up. So can I? This is so, you know, this is the crazy circle of baseball. Uh, I, I've had the pleasure to interview a lot of people. Ted Williams, Stan Musial, Willie Mays. But I, when people ask me, a couple of my favorite people, Tracy Stallard was so funny. And Tracy Stallard <laughs> had Casey Stengel stories. And he had... Oh, yeah. Oh, and But he was just... He, it's very rare that you can get a guy to be self-effacing, laugh at himself, understand the moment, appreciate his spot in history... Uh, I really, really, I had a chance to speak with him on a couple of different occasions. I really, really enjoyed the way he carried himself. I'm assuming that's, the the friendship just, is based upon that. He was just a fun guy to be around. He really was. Yeah. Um, one more for you then, sir. Uh, and I, again, speaking of Phil Rizzuto, do you ever dream, have you ever gone to, to bed at night or just had that moment where you're young again and you're you're pitching or there's just something that seems real has that because it's really crazy the players who say it's happened to them i've had guys who say no doubt about it they've had times over the period of their lives where i don't know i'm i'm playing i'm pitching it feels sort of real has that ever happened to you it happens often it really does and uh, i'm out there and Heck, in the middle of the ball game, I'm ducking line drives, hit back at me, and everything <laughs> else. It is it is surreal to be uh, that real. And it's not really guys talk about specific games. It's just the atmosphere. It's just right, being back right. in uniform. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, and on you, road trips and the like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let, so you actually post baseball. You opened up a restaurant, did you not? I did. How'd that I go? Did. did you enjoy that world? It went it went well. Actually, that was the toughest job I ever had. And you, <laughs> you just got, you have to live there. Yeah. Or, uh, but I, 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 I spent eight years in it. Tell everybody what the name everything. was. I did the hiring and the firing yeah, and the ordering and the this and the that. And I, I probably spent about 80, 90 hours a week. Oh, goodness. There. Tell everybody what the name of it was. Fat Jacks. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Well, Mr. Fisher, uh, you sound like a man who's greatly appreciated what it is you were able to accomplish and the people that you were around. And I, I always find it really interesting. I, I, I'm very happy when guys are okay with their careers and, and understanding sort of where their place was and the idea that they were lucky enough. By the way, here's the other thing, and, and it's hard for people young to imagine this. Not only that many minor league teams, but there are only four starting jobs, 16 teams in baseball. Everybody's on a one-year contract. They're scouring the country to try to find your replacement. 
you can't show that you might not be healthy. I mean, it really is. It's it's not a knock on today's game, but it really, really was different back then. Well, uh, it certainly. You just have to be lucky and be in the right place at the right time. Paul Richards had the idea of uh, bringing the young players up. I mean, the idea of only pitching, uh, you know, less than two years in the minor leagues and be called to the big leagues was just unheard of in those days. And the fact that there were only 16 clubs, that's one thing I'm very proud of, that I made it when there were only 16 clubs. And uh, and I tricked him for a little while. I tricked him for about uh, about twelve years. So uh, certainly wasn't a star, but I made a lot of stars. And, and you pl- and listen, you played with guys, and your ability to tell me a little bit about just some of the names I mentioned. And uh, my God, there's dozens upon dozens more. It also tells me it sounds like you had an appreciation for where you were at that point in your life. Like this wasn't taken for granted. This was, oh my gosh, that is Ted Williams, and I can. I can not only be a teammate of Willie Mays, but certainly appreciate his greatness on top of that. And I, I think there's something to be said for that as well. And I always thought I could get him out. Yeah. Good for you, which is how you get to do it for 12 years when they're trying to replace you every year because that's just the way the game goes. That's it. All right, Mr. Fisher, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed this. I want to thank you again for your time, and at some point, hopefully, we'll catch up again. Okay, Chris. Hey, Jack, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Touching the side, everyone standing at Fenway Park as Ted Williams hits probably for the last time in a Boston uniform in this ballpark. There's a drive to deep right center. This may be gone. Brad Lee back there watching. Home run. What do I do? He hits a home run. Well, if you had written it that way, nobody would believe it, so I even try. The 521st of his major league career. Williams rounding the bases. It all fits. It fits the story. It fits the final frame of your movie. My uh, first dream was um, to just pitch one inning in a big league game or win one game. This is the end.